Let's pray together. We are grateful, Father, for the truth that it's all by grace and grace alone. Our prayer is, Father, that you would make that truth ever evident in our lives, even today. And that your spirit might move and work in us in such a way that we'll be a powerful force this coming week throughout this area serving people, serving you, witnessing the gospel. Do that work in and through our lives. And Father, we lift up those in our fellowship today who are homesick or homebound or in the hospital who are recovering from surgery. Whatever is going on in their lives, Father, even this very moment, give them a sense of your presence. It will be comforting and powerful to them today. Father, I know there's some today even watching this service on their computers because they couldn't get out of the house. So we pray that you might speak to them as well through your word. And in a world that so desperately needs you, Father, we pray for our leaders, the leaders of our nation, particularly our state, our city. That they might have your wisdom in the decisions they make. And we pray for the leaders of this congregation that they might have wisdom in the decisions that they make. Thank you for your great love we have in Jesus Christ our Lord. May we sense that love in a real and powerful way as our pastor brings the word today. And we pray, too, that you would take these gifts from your people, multiply them, use them for your glory. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. I invite you, if you would, to open your Bibles to the Gospel of John, chapter 4. Gospel of John, chapter 4. We will pick up in the midst of a narrative that uh, Pastor Frank has been leading us through for the last couple of weeks. We'll be picking up 
verse 19 of chapter 4. And I'll give you a recap of, of that in a minute. It was about three years ago, maybe a little, little over that, three and a half years ago. We did a series on worship, and in that series we addressed this text, and um, we come back to it this morning. It is such a pivotal text in our understanding of what it is we've come to do here today. Uh, I had thought about doing this, but chose not to. Um, but it would have been very interesting to have done, to have given each of you a piece of paper when you came in this morning with a simple question at the top that says, why are you here today? And just had you fill out a one-sentence answer for that, without your names on it, of course, and put it in a hat, and I could have just read those off to you, but that might have been embarrassing to someone. But I suspect if we had done that this morning, we would have gotten all sorts of answers for why folks have come here today. And so I I pose that question to you just to think about for a moment. Why is it that you came here today? It could be a lot of places. I mean, you can see through the windows. It's nice outside today. You could be on the water. You could be on a golf course. You could be be just enjoying the beach. You could be doing about anything today. Why is it you've come here? Why is it you've come? What is it that you hope to accomplish in, in coming to a gathered church service today? Now, I suspect we would have gotten all sorts of answers to that. I would hope that in the mix of the answers that we got, that there would have been a large chunk of them that would have just simply said, I've come to worship God. I hope that would have been what I would have seen most of. I suspect with a crowd this size that it wouldn't have been the majority answer to the question. But it really is the only reason for you to have come here today, because that's really the only thing that we're after. I mean, uh, you could go a lot of other places and hear better sermons. You could go a lot of other places by far and find better entertainment. Um, of course, uh, we, we haven't made it through the sermon yet, so it could prove entertaining uh, if I really blow it this morning. But uh, there's a lot of... Uh, the only thing that we hope to accomplish well in here is to worship God. And if you come for any other reason, then you're probably going to go away pretty severely disappointed in what you've come for this morning. It's really the only thing we've come to do is to worship God. To worship God. We, we even call this sometimes a, a worship service, but worship really isn't a service, and it's not something uh, that you can really particularly orchestrate. From a leadership perspective, what we try to do is we try to present God's truth and we try to create an environment such that when you come and we gather together, we all together corporately encounter the living God and we're drawn in response to worship Him. That's what we're trying to do. But really, worship is a matter of of the heart. It's something that we do, not something that we watch. It's something that emanates from within us, not something that that we observe from the outside as spectators. And it's an important part of obedience to Christ. And it's an important part of, of a living faith that is worship. Worship. The Bible, start to finish, calls us to to worship. It's a biblical imperative. And and just a quick little snapshot of the Psalms. Listen to what the psalmists tell us in in calling us to worship God. Psalm 29.2, ascribe to the Lord the glory due His name. Worship the Lord in the splendor of His holiness. It's a call to worship. Psalm 95, verse 6, come, let us bow down and worship. Let us kneel before the Lord our Maker. It's a, it's a call to worship God. Psalm 99.9 Exalt the Lord our God and worship at His holy mountain. Why? For the Lord our God is holy. 
Psalm 100, verse 2. Worship the Lord with gladness. Come before Him with joyful songs. And this is just a little snapshot. I mean, we could go on and take ten minutes just pointing to the passages in the Old and New Testament that call us, that demand that people who love the Lord Jesus worship God. And this morning you could go around the city and you could go to dozens and dozens of churches and, and you would see lots of other people gathered in other places uh, with, the same, with the same intent to worship God. And you could observe gathered groups worshiping and you would see all sorts of things this morning. I mean, you could see all, all, all kinds of things that, that, that are, are done in the name of worship. You could go to some places where, where you'd find a very formal sort of an environment where everybody sits very still and it's very quiet and it's very reverent. And you could blow a cannon off in the, in the walkway and nobody would move. It's very formal and very ritualized. There's a lot of that and you could find it without looking very hard and you could go other places and you could find uh, the completely opposite uh, sort of environment where it's completely informal and it's the opposite of ritual and it's the opposite of those things I just described it would be you, you, you could find places where people are, 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 are all over the place where they're running around and jumping and rolling on the floors and yelling and all sorts of things in the name of worship some places you would go it would be very quiet and very reverent other places you could go this morning and, and the environment would rival a Van Halen concert. You could go some places where what you would experience in the time that you were there was mostly music. You would go other places where the Word of God is taught in depth. And all across the spectrum and everywhere in between these poles that I pointed out, you would find places this morning. And when you, when you look at it from the outside coming in, particularly if you're not familiar with church environments very much, it's all rather a bit confusing, to be honest. I mean, what exactly is the kind of worship that God desires? Or is that question even relevant for us to ask? Does it even matter to ask that question? What kind of worship is it that God desires? There are those who have voices in our culture that speak even from within the church world that would just argue it doesn't matter. It really doesn't matter. It's a dumb question. We don't ask what God desires. Whatever we do in the name of worship is fine. As long as you're sincere, you just do whatever you want. God doesn't really care, they would say, what kind of worship you offer. Well, uh, without spending too much time on that, it's really a biblically illiterate argument. Of course it matters how we worship God, doesn't it? Do you think it matters? Of course it matters how we worship God. And I would argue to you this morning that God most definitely cares how He is worshipped. And He's told us in His Word remarkably clearly exactly what kind of worship He desires. Exactly what it is that he demands and expects from his people when they come to worship him. He's told us pretty clearly what those things are. And as somebody who cares about being obedient to Christ, you and I ought to care what it is that God desires out of the worship of his people. That's what we come at this morning. God has made abundantly clear um, there are acceptable ways of worshiping him and there are unacceptable ways of worshiping him. 
He's laid out a, a real, real emphatically a couple of very clear, unacceptable forms of worship. We won't dwell on them, but I'll mention them for you and just point to a couple of passages of Scripture to anchor them. One of the things that God has made clear about unacceptable worship, the kind that, that He rejects, is he, he, he's, he said to us that the kind of worship that's unacceptable is the kind that's hypocritical, the kind that's fake, the kind that is fraudulent, the kind that isn't authentic, the kind that isn't real. And you know, you could go through... You could go through places today and you could, you could definitely experience fake, hypocritical, inauthentic worship. And you know, if you're, if you're someone who's been accustomed to going to church services, you probably don't have to look too deeply at your own life and too far back in your own past to, 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 to pinpoint moments where you've gone to places where worship was the environment, but what you offered was fake and it was artificial. God says it's unacceptable. It was, an, it was a clear problem in the Old Testament era. It's, an, it's a problem in the New. But a good example of that is Malachi chapter 1, verse 6 and following. Uh, God's people who had, had been called to come and gather and worship Him had, had fallen into this pattern of just absolutely fake and artificial and hypocritical worship. And God, God clearly makes, makes His opinion of that known. He says, listen, He says this to His people who have gathered in the name of worship. A son honors his father and a servant his master. If I'm a father, where's the honor due me? If I'm a master, where's the respect due me, says the Lord Almighty? It's you, O priests, who show contempt for my name. But, but you ask, how have we shown contempt for your name? Well, you place defiled food on my altar. But you ask, how have we defiled you? Now, by saying that the Lord's table is contemptible. When you bring blind animals for sacrifice, is that not wrong? When you sacrifice crippled or diseased animals, is that not wrong? Try offering those to your governor. Would he be pleased with you? Would he accept you? Says the Lord Almighty. Now implore God to be gracious to us with such offerings from your hands. Will he accept you? Oh, that one of you would do what? Shut the temple doors so that you would not light useless fires on my altar. I am not pleased with you says the Lord Almighty. And I will, I will accept no offering from your hands. Could God be more clear about this kind of unacceptable worship than that? You see, God had called His people to come before Him and to bring their very best offerings of worship. They were to, to bring their best sacrifice. They were to offer to God the first and the best of everything they had as a way of honoring Him as high and exalted and above everything else. And what had happened is their worship of Him had so, it, it had so uh, gone downward in their hearts that it had become so unimportant to Him. He had become so unimportant to them that they were now coming to offer not the first and the best of what they had, but the worst and the last, the stuff that nobody else would have wanted is what they were bringing to God, the leftovers of their life. It was heartless. And it spoke about how they viewed Him. Now, they may have patted themselves on the back and said, hey, at least we're going to church, right? I mean, surely we get some brownie points for that. I mean, I showed up. I didn't go to the beach. I sat there and I listened for a whole hour. Surely there's got to be some merit in that. What does God say about it to them? Is there merit in that? He, said, uh, he couldn't be more direct, could he? He says, I wish you'd just shut the doors. It'd be better to shut the doors and go to the beach than to do that. And he says, I won't accept that. I will accept nothing from you that comes at me that way. It's a useless fire. Why? Because it's fake. Because it's artificial. Because it's heartless and it lacks any passion or love for Him. 
It's just going through the motions. He follows in that passage by saying this, My name will be great among the nations, from the rising of the sun to the setting of the sun. In every place incense and pure offerings will be brought to my name, because my name will be great among the nations. See, they were bringing him offerings that didn't communicate that his name was great, did they? And he goes on to say, But you profane my name by saying at the Lord's table, It's defiled, and of its food it's contemptible. And listen to this. And you say, What a burden. And you sniff contemptuously at it. And when you bring your injured and crippled or diseased animals and you offer them as sacrifices, should I accept them from your hand, says the Lord? Cursed is the cheat who has an acceptable male in his flock and vows to give it, but then sacrifices a blemished animal to the Lord. For I am a great king, says the Lord Almighty, and my name will be feared among the nations. You get the picture? It's not just that they're offering their lame and their crippled and their worthless leftovers as sacrifices of worship, but they're even doing it with a rotten attitude. Did you catch that? He says that you sniff contemptuously and you say, what a burden. Oh, goodness, it's Sunday. We had to go to church again. Here we go. I guess we'll go. We can go to the beach after that. Some of you wake up this morning like that. Oh, it's Sunday. Here it is. Church day. Let's go. What a drag. To go listen to that guy talk for an hour again. Where do we do that in our culture? Sit and listen to someone talk for an hour. Nowhere. Except church. Same thing was going on in the worship of God's people in Jesus' day. And in, in the context of John chapter 4, he had a, in, in Matthew chapter 15, Jesus confronts this same sort of hypocritical false worship. And in uh, Matthew 15 verse 7, he says this, You hypocrites, Isaiah was right when he prophesied about you. These people honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. They worship me in vain. Their teachings are but rules taught by men. You see, they come and they worship it's, it, with their lips. They're going through all the motions on the outside, but their hearts are what? They're far from God. They're nowhere near God. They're not engaged with Him. So it's just going through the rote motions of, of, of worship, but it's meaningless and it's pointless. It's vain. It's empty. There's no point in it. So it's a kind of an un, unacceptable form of worship. God does care how He's worshipped. God does care. He doesn't receive fake, artificial, going through the motions sort of worship. It's unacceptable to Him. It's vain. It's a useless fire. Any of those descriptives. There's another kind of worship that God can't stand and that God doesn't, re- doesn't receive. Selfish worship. Selfish worship. What does that look like? It's the kind of worship that, that, that comes at the whole idea of worship, asking the question first and foremost, what's in it for me? Right? It's coming at worship from the perspective of not, I'm here to exalt and glorify God, but I'm coming because I want something out of this encounter. What's in it for me? Coming to get something for myself. I become then the focus of the worship, and it's all about what I get. And so I come and I, I do whatever it is I do, and I evaluate the environment that I'm in, kind of like a restaurant or kind of like a movie. I go and I, and I watch things happen, and I walk out the doors asking myself the question, well, what did I get out of that? Did I like it or did I not like it? Was it good or was it not good? Kind of like a, a meal, you know? Or a movie. Was it what I wanted it to be? Did it taste right? Which is actually a way of saying, did it taste the way I wanted it to taste? Selfish. One author said it this way. He said, sometimes the whole time we're in worship, we act as if the worship service is a self-help session designed to help religious addicts get their weekly emotional fix. As if the whole thing was meant to satisfy us. 
See, that's selfish worship. And he's right, because we come at it that way an awful lot. But biblical worship, godly worship, is radically God-centered. It's not so much about what we get out of it, it's about what we can offer up to Him. It's about God and exalting Him. That, that slide I showed just a few minutes ago with all the psalms on it. Josh, can we pop that one back up there again real quick? You can see this. Who's the focus of all these calls to worship? Ascribe to whom? To the Lord, the glory due His name. Worship whom? The Lord. Come, let us bow down and worship. Before whom? The Lord. Exalt the Lord, our God, and worship at His mountain. For the Lord is holy. Worship the Lord with gladness. Come before Him with joyful songs. Who's the focus of that kind of worship? Is it God or is it me? It's God. It's a call to come before Him and to offer something to Him. That's at least a foundation of acceptable worship. And to come at it in a heartless sort of a way, in a road sort of a way, is unacceptable. And to come at it in a selfish sort of a way is also unacceptable. God does care how He's worshipped. He does care. There are other things that He lays out as unacceptable. We want to take the time to do that this morning. But I wanted to point those two out because it relates to our text. And we're going to see that when we look at John chapter 4, the section that we'll address this morning, Jesus is going to, in the context of a conversation with a Samaritan woman, He's going to lay out for us a balance of worship. Um, that must be in place in our lives because if we get it out of balance and we tilt one way or the other, we end up in one of those two forms of unacceptable worship that God has promised not only to not receive, but to judge. And where is that balance that must be struck? Well, we find it in John chapter 4 in the context of this conversation with Jesus and the Samaritan woman. You remember Jesus and his disciples have, uh, just by way of recap, have, have headed out and they've started moving north. And, and instead of going around Samaria as most Jews would when they were traveling, Jesus takes his disciples right through Samaria. He has an appointment there. They don't know it, but Jesus knows it, that there's an appointment that he has to keep. And it's a, an appointment with this, with this woman. And uh, as they're going along, they get tired. And if you follow the text along, uh, they take a break. Uh, Jesus sits down for a rest. The disciples go ahead to find some food in this Samaritan town. And as he sits down, he encounters this interesting woman. And he strikes up a conversation with him, excuse me, with her. He sits down and he sees her, and Jesus says to this woman, very simply, give me a drink. That's in verse 7. And the Samaritan woman says to him, how is it that you, a Jew, ask for a drink from me, a woman of Samaria? Because, John tells us, Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. And Jesus enters into this this very, frankly, respectable and respectful conversation with this woman. And as, the, as the, the conversation unfolds, we find that this woman is an outcast. We find that this woman has been married and had, had uh, uh, relationships fall apart, probably in many ways due to her own unfaithfulness. This is far from a righteous woman. And Jesus, in this respectful conversation with her, begins to expose her sin. And he he ultimately points her to himself as the Savior who's come to redeem people just like her from sins just like hers. And Pastor Frank has led us through that first part of that up to this point. After exposing her sin in verses 15 and following, excuse me, verses 16 and following, Jesus and he does that by telling her to go find her husband. And she says, I don't have a husband, which is true. And Jesus responds to her by saying, you're right. You, you don't have a husband, for you've had five, and the one you live with now is not your husband. 
And you know, this must have shocked this woman, right? This must have absolutely shocked her that this man could know that. Maybe if you lived in Samaria, you knew that. But how could a possibly a Jew walking through know something like that? I mean, this woman has just had probably the, the most personal of personal things about her revealed in front of her eyes. I mean, what's more personal than your private sex life with, with the opposite sex? I guess that's the best way of saying it. That's what Jesus exposes right there. I mean, the, the most hidden kind of sin that folks would not want exposed. And Jesus just opens it right up and puts it right out on the table. And this woman must have been humiliated. She must have been taken aback that anyone could know this, particularly a stranger, a Jewish stranger at that. And like most people, when that kind of situation happens and our sin becomes exposed to someone else, um, she wants to, to turn the conversation in a different direction. And that's where we pick up in verse 19 with her saying, Sir, I, I perceive you're a prophet. Well, yeah, how else could he know such a thing? How else could he know without, without being a prophet? Listen to the rest of the text. I'll just read the rest and we'll, we'll go from there. Our father, she says, worshipped on this mountain, verse 20. But you say that in Jerusalem is the place where people ought to worship. And Jesus said to her, Woman, believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. You worship what you do not know. We worship what we know. For salvation is from the Jews. But the hour is coming and is now here when true worshippers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For the Father is seeking such people to worship him. For you see, God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. It's verse 23 and verse 24 that, that, kind, of, that kind of form the, the focal point of that interchange where he simply identifies the kinds of worshipers. That he asked, what kind of people does God want worshiping him? What does he expect of people who come before him to worship? He expects people to worship him in spirit and truth. That's the answer to the question. What kind of worshipers does God seek? What kind of worshipers does God require? Does God want? Is he looking for the kind that worship him in spirit and truth? That's the kind. And he lays it out right there in this conversation with this woman. We're going to work through this a bit, but we'll just the simple definition here. What does it mean to worship God in spirit and truth? How are we going to play out this balance this morning? Uh, I'll lay it out to you, and then we'll, we'll, we'll jump into the details of it. On the one hand, to worship God in spirit is to worship Him from our hearts. It's to worship Him with passion and emotion from the inside of us engaged with Him. It's to, it's to, it's to worship Him in a way that's passionate and intense, and connects with the heart of our emotions. That's to worship Him in spirit. It comes from within. And the other side is to worship Him in truth. That is to worship Him in ways that understand Him rightly. And the only way that you can understand Him rightly is to understand His Word. Because it's His Word that reveals who He is. If we're going to worship God rightly and worship Him in truth, we're going to have to worship Him out of a context that's rooted in the truth of His Word. So here's the balance. The balance of the kinds of worshipers that God is seeking are those who worship Him out of truth. That is, they know who He really is. They understand Him. They understand who He's revealed Himself to be in His Word and what His Word says about Him. They, it's rooted in that kind of a truth. And on the other hand, they're the kind of people who come at it passionately, intensely, from the heart. So that's the balance that has to be struck. And look, it's like a teeter-totter sort of a thing. If you tilt too far in one direction to the exclusion of the other, and you end up in one of the errors that we identified in the introduction. 
John Piper plays this out pretty closely. He said this. He said, truth without emotion produces dead orthodoxy in a church full or half full of artificial admirers, like people who write generic anniversary cards for a living. On the other hand, emotion without truth produces an empty frenzy and it cultivates shallow people who refuse the discipline of rigorous thought. But true worship comes from people who are deeply emotional and who love deep and sound doctrine. Strong affections for God rooted in truth. That's the bone and marrow of biblical worship. That's brilliant. It's brilliant. And it lays out for us this balance that Jesus is laying out for the Samaritan woman. And to tilt too far in either direction to the exclusion of the other produces exactly what Piper says that it produces. And this is what we see in this text. Jesus is trying to communicate on the subject of worship. Now, just a quick recap on who are the Samaritans, because it matters to us understanding this property properly. Pastor Frank gave us all this, so I'll give you the jet flyby. The Samaritans were a race of people who developed with intermarriage between the Israelites who were left over in the northern kingdom after, um, uh, after the Assyrians came in, and the Assyrian settlers who were brought in by the Assyrians. So there was all this intermarriage and a new sort of half-breed race of folks if you will, uh, develops and they become the Samaritans. And there's all this racial tension between the Samaritans and the Jews. Um, We know that. We've talked about it a bit. But what's particularly important is to understand Samaritan worship. Their worship was this, this hybrid sort of a mix between the worship of Jehovah God, like the Jews did, and then all these other pagan worship practices mixed in. The word for that is syncretism. It's syncretistic. It's the the genuine worship of God mixed with all the false worship of pagan gods in some weird hybrid. So if you had gone to see Samaritans worship, you would see things that resembled Jewish worship, but you'd see all sorts of other things as well because that's what was going on. They had accepted the first five books of the Jewish Old Testament, the Pentateuch, the rest they had rejected. They observed some of the certain Jewish feasts that the Jews did, but not all of them. Um, They looked for a coming Messiah in some ways similar to the Jews. Um, But their worship was centered on a location called Mount Gerizim, as opposed to where Jews worshipped, which was in what place? Jerusalem. That's where the temple was, and that's where they worshipped. So the... the, uh, This goes back into all sorts of historical conflicts between these groups. But suffice it to say, for our purposes this morning, the Samaritans had set up an alternate worship location on Mount Gerizim. They had even at one point built a temple there um, to rival the temple in in, uh, Jerusalem. And they had their own worship going on over there in contrast to what was going on in Jerusalem. And, and, And the worship... Uh, looked similar in some ways, but different in others. They, they, they offered sacrifices over there, similar to the sacrifices in Jerusalem, um, but not all of them and not exactly the same. But one thing that's notable about Samaritan worship is it was enthusiastic and it was passionate. It was enthusiastic and it was passionate. You need to know that. Now, by the way, there, as of 2007, there still were modern-day Samaritans. Did you know that? There's still people who are descendants of this crowd, the Samaritans. There was a a survey done in, in uh, November 1st, 2007, they found about 712 Samaritans living in one of two locations. Uh, one of them is still near Mount Gerizim, that, what we mentioned in this text, uh, and another is in uh, an Israeli city called Holan. Uh, but there are also other people who do are descendants from the, the Samaritans. 
that are still around as well. Uh, but you've got this, this pagan sort of a hybrid worship mixed with the worship of Jehovah, but it's very passionate and it's very intense and it's very emotional, and that's what's going on. And so this woman engages in this conversation with Jesus, and she turns the attention away from her, her own adulterous ways, uh, from her relationship with her husbands and the man she's now living with, because who wants to talk about that much more, any, right? I mean, let's, let's move on to a new topic. Um, and so she turns to this issue of worship, and she says to Jesus, I can see you're a prophet. Our fathers worshipped on this mountain, but you Jews claim that the place where we must worship is in Jerusalem. She senses that he's a prophet, and she turns the, the conversation to the issue of the location of appropriate worship. Now, we can all we can do is speculate as to what her motives are. I mean, I think probably it's pretty clear she doesn't want to talk about her relationships anymore. But why does she turn it to this issue of worship? I don't know. We're not told. John doesn't tell us. It could be a lot of different reasons. But um, this, this was the central dispute between the Samaritans and the Israelites, this issue of worship. And it had been debated for centuries at this point. It's kind of like people who, who debate now, you know, free will and the sovereignty of God. You know, we've debated it for centuries and nobody's solved it yet completely. And so the debate rages on. So if you want to kill a party, go ahead and bring that issue up. Um, you know? So maybe that's what she's wanting to do, bring up this issue, this unsolvable theological dispute, you know. It's the elephant in the room. It's the thing that separates me, a Samaritan woman, primarily from you, a Jewish man. This issue of where's the right place of worship. So maybe we can get on this subject, you know, we won't be able to get to a conclusion. Or maybe, perceiving he's a prophet, she really thought he had the answer. We don't know. But regardless, it wasn't about her anymore. It was now about worship. And so she asked this question. She asked him this question, where, where is the right location of worship? You, you Jews say it's Jerusalem, but our fathers worshipped here at Mount Gerizim. And Jesus answered her, Believe me, woman, a time is coming when you will worship the Father neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem. She's trying to divert the conversation, but she's taking it down a road exactly where Jesus is interested in going. He doesn't blow off her conversation. Now, let's get back to these relationships that we were talking about a minute ago, does he? No, he goes right with her. Let's talk about worship. You want to talk about worship? Here's the the answer to your question. There's a time coming when it will either be this mountain, Gerizim, or Jerusalem. He starts to say, you know what? Your question on the surface is really kind of an irrelevant question. We don't have to really debate this very much because in short order, this is going to be a question that nobody's going to be asking. It's not going to matter because both of these locations are going to be irrelevant. And the worship that currently takes place at both of these locations is no longer going to be appropriate for conversation. It's going to be out of the picture. Well, what's going to change? I mean, this is prophetic. Something was about to happen that was going to change worship altogether. Do you know what that thing was? Okay, Jesus is about to be what? In a little while. To be crucified. Thank you. Somebody remembered. Somebody is still awake. All right. Jesus is going to be arrested. He's going to be crucified. He's going to die. He's going to shed his blood. And he's going to die on the cross. One of the, the interesting features of the crucifixion story is when Jesus dies on the cross, something happens in the temple. Do you remember what happens? Okay, there's this huge veil that separated the Holy of Holies from people. And the only person that could go in there was the high priest once a year. It, it identified this separation between God and his people and the idea that worship had to be mediated through these priests and the high priest ultimately to get to God. And when Jesus is crucified, that veil is ripped from the top to the bottom, identifying something very clear. 
that that barrier is no longer there. That it is no longer through this system of worship that goes on in this temple that people need to, to come to get access to God. They now have access to Him personally. And that changes everything. It was God's way of dramatically showing to people that everything that took place in that temple in Jerusalem was now defunct and unnecessary. It was God's stamp of, of this is over on that temple and all of Jewish worship. No longer do you need to go to that place to worship Him anymore. Any place that you go now becomes a sanctuary. No longer do you need to go to that human high priest because now Jesus Christ Himself is going to be for each and every person our high priest who intercedes before the Father on our behalf. And beyond that, every person who believes in the Lord Jesus Christ is going to be indwelt with the Holy Spirit. And they don't have to go to the temple in Jerusalem because their body now becomes what? The temple of the Holy Spirit, wherever they go. And so it was God's way of saying, this is over, and it's defunct. And by the way, you may not know this, but not too long after that, in A.D. 70, the Romans come through, and they absolutely destroy that temple in Jerusalem. Not even a single stone standing on top of another, and it's gone off the face of the earth, not to be rebuilt. The Romans also went up to Mount Gerizim, and you know what they did there? They destroyed every resemblance of worship there as well. So when Jesus says to this woman, you know what, there's a time that's coming when worship isn't going to happen either there or here, he meant it in two ways. In a spiritual way, both were going to become defunct, and in a physical way, both were going to be obliterated. So he tells her what she probably does not understand at the moment. But then he says something else that's more important for us. He says this, you Samaritans worship what you do not know. We worship what we do know, for salvation is from the Jews. Now, is Jesus insulting the Samaritan woman by saying you, you worship what you don't know? He's saying to her, you worship in ignorance. Your worship is ignorant worship, is what he's saying. You guys have very enthusiastic, very passionate sort of worship going on up here on Mount Gerizim, but it's ignorant worship. You worship what you do not know. You, you, you don't know God. How could Jesus make such a claim to them besides the fact that he knows them? What had they rejected? They had rejected all of the Old Testament except for the first five books. They had rejected the Psalms. They had rejected the Proverbs. They had rejected all of the prophets that we see. I mean, the bulk of the Old Testament. And it's in these books where God reveals himself in such clarity and in, in, in so many very profound and real sorts of ways. To cut yourself off from that is not to know the true God in his fullest sense. It's only to know him in part and in a slice. And so Jesus is referring to this. He's saying, you worship what you don't know because you've cut yourself off from my full revelation of who my Father is. You've, you've cut yourself off from that so you don't know Him. You're worshiping in ignorance. So they've got this enthusiastic worship going on, but it's worship that's not anchored in truth. It's worthy to note here that sincerity isn't the issue, is it? Sincerity isn't the issue. It's very likely that many of these Samaritans who were worshiping on Mount Gerizim were worshiping very sincerely. That is to say they meant it. It was a sincere offering to what they thought was God. But sincerity isn't the issue here. God isn't saying, I just accept any kind of worship as long as it's sincere. He's saying, listen, this is worship, but it's worship that's anchored in ignorance, not the truth. And so it's not authentic worship. They worship in spirit, but not in truth. But then Jesus goes on to say, we worship what we do know, for salvation is from the Jews. What does he mean by that? Salvation is from the Jews. Well, he's, to whom did God entrust his word? The Samaritans or the Jews? The Jews. 
Yeah, I'm giving you the answers beforehand. So you're saying after me in that way, I know you're awake. The Jews, out of, out of, out of what, what chosen race of people was Messiah, Christ, the one who's speaking, did he come? The Samaritans or the Jews? The Jews. Salvation is from the Jews. God's word was mediated through the Jewish people. God's Savior, the Messiah, came through the Jewish race. That's what he's saying. They had the full revelation of God in the Old Testament. They had, they had the full revelation, and they had received it, and they understand who God was in truth. It wasn't in ignorance that they worshipped. Now, if you think about uh, the condition of worship in, in Jesus' day in Jerusalem, Jewish worship, what was going on there? You remember? I mean, they had the full Old Testament, so they had all the truth, right? They had all the doctrine. They understood who God was fully. They could, you could give them a doctrinal quiz, and they could answer the questions. But you know what had happened in their worship at the temple? The same thing that happened in that Malachi passage, right? It had become worship that was anchored in truth, but it was completely heartless, completely devoid of any passionate connection to the living God. It was worship in truth, but not worship in spirit. No passion, no heart, no intensity, but they had correct doctrine. Do you see the contrast that Jesus is painting between what's going on on Mount Gerizim and what's going on in Jerusalem? On the one hand, you've got worship in spirit, but not worship in truth. On Gerizim. On Jerusalem, you've got worship in truth, but not worship in spirit. So you've got two equal errors going on here. And what Jesus is saying to this woman is, look, look, here's the issue. Uh, Here's the issue. This is going to become an irrelevant question altogether. But if you want a, a temporary answer... The, the worship over here is at least in truth, and that one is not. But that even, at the end of the day, doesn't really matter. Because in verse 23, he says, A time's coming and has now come when true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. Why does he say that? Because he's saying, look, on a technicality of your question, I guess we would have to affirm what's going on in, in Jerusalem. But at the end of the day, the real answer to your question is what's going on in both places is a foul. Neither one of them has got it right. What's getting ready to happen is all of it's going to change, and the right kind of worship... Worshippers are going to be coming before the Father. Not the kind who worship in spirit but not truth. Not the kind who worship in truth but not spirit. But the kind that God is actually seeking. Those who worship in spirit and truth. Woman, what's happening in Gerizim is an affront to God. And what's happening to Jerusalem is an affront to God. Neither one of them is acceptable worship. That's what Jesus is going to say. And you know, we have both of those poles going on in our culture today, don't we? You could go to places this morning and you'd see very enthusiastic, very heartfelt, probably very sincere sorts of, of, of worship where it's intense and it's passionate. And you can see that and you can sense it in the room. But then you look at the doctrine and the truth that's being taught and you say, oh my goodness, this is, this is so far away from what God has actually said in His Word. That we've got spirit worship going on, but it's blowing away and it's not anchored in truth. And it gets off into so many tangents and things that dishonor the Lord. And you could also go to other places this morning where you could quiz the congregation. They could get all the doctrine right and they understand the Word of God and they know truth, but it's heartless and it's cold and it's dead and it's empty and you sense it and you feel it and you know it when you're in the place. I hope that neither one of those things is characteristic of what goes on here when we gather. On the one hand, you've got this kind of wild... Uh, sort of uh, uh, enthusiastic worship with no truth. And on the other hand, you've got a dead sort of an orthodoxy where all the truth is in the right compartments, but, but nobody's very excited about it. Nobody seems to get very worked up about it, you know? About 30 minutes, we're looking at the watch. 
like when I was a kid filling in all those zeros on the bulletin. I just gave you something to do, by the way. I, it's a different number every week. I mean, I found that out when I was a kid. There's two poles, and both of these things have to be kept in the balance. Jesus lays this out. The kinds of worshipers the Father is seeking is those who worship in spirit and truth. Both truth-saturated and passionate and intense. Let's look at those individually with the time that we have left. What does he mean by this idea of passionate, intense worship? What he's saying here, this idea of worshiping in spirit, is the worship that comes from the inside out. It's worship that connects with our emotions. It's worship that's more than just getting doctrine right. It's worship that's more than just learning. It's the kind of worship that, that grabs our hearts, that engages our emotions, that draws us in to an encounter with the living God. It's passionate. It's intense. C.S. Lewis talks about this, what he calls disinterested benevolence that he sees sometimes in worship, and he calls it evil. He says this, It would be a bold and silly creature that came before its creator with the boast, I'm no beggar, I love you disinterestedly. And yet if you looked at us, you'd think that we loved him disinterestedly. Wouldn't you? How about this morning? We've been in the context of worship now for quite some time. An hour, in case you were checking. An hour. Would the worship that you've offered to God this morning in the various venues through which you've had an opportunity to offer it, would it, looked, would it look like disinterested benevolence? Or would it look like passionate, heartfelt worship? To say we love God and then to worship Him disinterestedly is a living contradiction. John Piper goes on to say this, lamenting kind of what passes off for worship in churches today. And he says this, For many, Christianity has just become the grinding out of general doctrinal laws from collections of biblical facts. But childlike wonder and awe have died. The scenery and poetry and the music of the majesty of God have dried up like a forgotten peach at the back of the refrigerator. That is so true, isn't it? And it's such a temptation for me It's a temptation, I think, for all of us that we can lose that childlike wonder and awe of the God that we worship. And our worship can deteriorate in such a way that we just offer a sort of a disinterested, benevolent sort of a going through the motions before Him. And we pat ourselves on the back as though we've done something really great. And yet we feel nothing and nothing grabs our emotions and we're not moved in the slightest by what we do or see or experience. We stand like a robot, cold, stone, Reciting rituals, heartlessly worshiping. Jesus is saying to us this morning, you cannot be satisfied with that and walk with the Lord. You can't be satisfied with that. If that is a characteristic of your worship as it stands in your life right now, you must not be satisfied with that. You must hear Jesus challenging that this morning in this conversation with this woman. That is not what it means to worship in spirit. Let me just make a little quick note here. We're not talking about passionate worship, meaning that we always have to be happy, clappy, jumping around. That's not the point. That's not the point. 
The point is that authentic worship, when it's rooted in a genuine heart that loves God, it touches the emotions, and at various times it hits all of the emotions. It's not just about jumping around happy all the time. Sometimes when we come and we worship the Lord, we see, we see Him reveal Himself to us in various ways. We, we see His majesty and His glory, and we're just passionately in awe of who He is, and that drives us emotionally to worship Him in, in light of that. Sometimes when we encounter Him, it exposes our sin, and our sin brings heartbreak and shame to us, and and our passionate response and worship to that is a passionate kind of a repentance that, that touches us at the heart where we're broken over our sin. That's passionate worship too. Sometimes it's just a passionate quietness where we're awestruck by who He is and we have nothing to say. The point is not any particular kind of emotion. The point is that passionate worship and spirits connects with the heart of who we are. And we are struck by God. And we feel something. We're moved. And we worship Him with enthusiasm and with our hearts. In whatever way that comes off. Joy, repentance, confession, awe, wonder. Whatever the response, it should be passionate. That's the point. One author said it this way. Where feelings for God are dead, worship is dead. Maybe that's the most direct way of saying it. Feelings for God are dead. Worship is dead. Al Martin said this. Men have worshipped with open Bibles and with the name of Christ and the Bible on their lips, while whole congregations before them have been held in the grip of barrenness and lifelessness and powerlessness, where it has been weeks and months and years since hearts have been ravished with the sight of the glory of God on the face of Jesus Christ where it's been years since any hymn has been sung with abandonment, years since a tear has trickled down the face of a worshiper, years since a hallelujah flowed out of a bursting heart. That sadly describes so many church environments today. You know what sadly it often describes ours? Let me ask you a question. How many years has it been since you've been moved by God in worship? How many years has it been since the tears trickled down to your face? How many years has it been since the hallelujah burst out of your heart? How many years has it been since you've prayed with passion, since you've sung with passion, since you've engaged in the study of God's Word with a heart that's driven toward Him? I would suspect that for some of us, the answer to that question would be it's been a long time. It's been a really long time. And my, 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 my follow-up question would be what, what stole that from you? What's caused you to lose it and to default into such a state that you're in right now? Circumstances or people or complacency or sin or just conforming to what you see everybody else doing? What would it take to get your passion back and worship? I can't answer these questions for you, but you know what? God can answer them. I bet if you'll seek Him this morning, He'll help you. Charles Spurgeon said it this way, None find joy in worship but those who throw their hearts into it. I wonder this morning if some people need to throw their hearts into it. But that's not the balance. That's just worship in spirit. Worship in spirit uh, can't fly by itself. It's got to be anchored in biblical truth. And that's the other side of it. And the truth deals with the head. It deals with the intellect. Spirit deals with the heart and the emotions. Truth deals with the head and the intellect and knowledge. Although we, our worship has to be passionate and it has to engage the emotions, it can't be only that. We have to be the kind of people who are anchored in truth. And Piper once again comments on this. He says... True worship does not come from people whose feelings are like air ferns with no root in the solid ground of biblical doctrine. The only affections that honor God are those that are rooted in the rock of biblical truth. And he's right. 
MacArthur said it this way, By all means, worship should be passionate, heartfelt, and moving, but the point is not to stir the emotions while turning off the mind. True worship emerges, um, and it merges a heart and mind in one response of, of pure adoration based on the truth revealed in His Word. So it's the truth that strikes our emotions, that we, we're confronted with the truth in our minds of who God is and what He's done, and, and that sparks the emotions to respond to Him in worship. Do you see how those two things work together? That's how it works. Kind of an emotional frenzy, frenzy sort of separated from, from truth is not worship. A good, a good example of this would be a kite. I've got a little picture. Sometimes pictures help. Strong affections for God rooted in biblical truth. You know, a kite functions properly only when it's rooted to the string, right? You let a kite go without the string, and what happens? It blows off into chaos and crashes and burns, right? The string without a kite lays on the ground. Um, it's just a string, in case you didn't know. Um, you put the two together, and, and it works like it's supposed to. Our emotions can soar on the winds of spirit when they're anchored in biblical truth. And you, you cut them off from biblical truth, and they fly off into disaster. Do you see how that works? Is the picture helpful? Okay. It's the Word of God where God has chosen to reveal His truth. That's why it's so important that any worship of God be saturated with the truth of God's Word, with the Bible. And it's a sad reality in our culture today, and I hear this from those of you who visit our church and those of you who move in from other places to Charleston and you go looking around for a church. I hear this consistently as I greet guests out in the lobby. You know, we've gone to a bunch of churches and we've gone looking for a church. You know, we can't really find anywhere where anybody's teaching the Bible. And it's shocking to me. What is the kind of worship that takes place in a place where there's no teaching of God's Word? Where God's truth isn't being held up? You have a kite divorced from the string. I don't know what it is, but it's not worship. It might be enthusiastic, it might be sincere, but it's not worship. I hear it all the time. It's why for us it's important to hold up God's Word. It's important to read God's Word. It's important to pray God's Word. It's important for us to spend a lengthy amount of time on a given Sunday morning dealing with His truth because it's His truth that gets revealed to your mind and in your mind you see God for who He is and you understand Him properly as He's revealed Himself and as you see Him, you get a close-up glimpse of Him and all of a sudden you're struck by who He is and it sparks your emotions to want to respond to that and the response then becomes an intense, passionate response of worship. That's worship. Do you see that? I don't feel like I'm describing it very well. Sanctify them in the truth, Jesus said. Your word is truth. Genuine worship is not just striking the emotions. You know what? You can go watch a movie and strike your emotions. Hollywood's great at that, right? You can watch a movie. Hollywood's great. They can make you cry. They can make you laugh. They can make you mad. They can make you all kinds of things. They can move your emotions in all sorts of different directions by a movie, but that's not worship. The same thing can happen in the context of a church sanctuary. Great people who are, who are uh, charismatic sorts of speakers who are really good at moving a crowd can make you laugh, they can make you cry, they can make you mad, they can tick you off, they can do all sorts of things, but that alone is not worship if it's divorced from biblical truth. Do you get that? Okay, I'll quit talking about it then. And so the issue here is the balance of spirit and truth. Jonathan Edwards said it this way. He said, I should think myself in the way of my duty to raise the affections of my hearers as high as I possibly can. To raise their affections as high as possible, he says. Spoken from somebody who read his sermons, okay? Um, 
to raise the affections of my hearers as high as I possibly can, provided that they are affected with nothing but truth. Did you get that? I want to raise your affections, your emotions as high as possible, provided that I'm only using as my tool to do that what? Truth. Truth. That's great. Wow. Our time is up this morning. But Jesus says to this woman, here's the kind of worshipers that God is going to be seeking. And you know, what he's going to say as we move on, and woman, you can be one of these. That's going to be even more remarkable, right? That this adulterous woman can be the kind of a worshiper that God is seeking, the kind that worships him in spirit, and the kind that worships him in truth. But the challenge to you and me this morning is this, is to look at our own selves and to evaluate where we stand in the area of worship. Are we the kind of worshipers that the Father is seeking? Are we the kind that come with a commitment to the truth of God, with a sincere desire to know God, to understand His truth, um, to, to, to know Him as He's revealed Himself to be? Is the truth important to us? And then secondarily, the corollary question, are we the kind of people who worship Him in spirit? Do we come with our hearts engaged? Do we come with a passion to encounter Him and to respond to Him with every fiber of our being? When we sing, do we sing with heart? When we pray, do we pray with passion? When we study God's Word, are we studying with joy and with abandon? Is that you? Is that you? I pray that it is, but if it's not, then we can pray right now and seek God's help in making it become the reality of our lives. Can we do that together? Would you pray with me? God, we confess before you that often, often, often our worship is so inadequate. If we're being honest with ourselves, we come uh, to gather with other believers and everything in the world is on our mind except for you. Often we come here not even cognizant of you, but thinking about what we're going to get out of it, evaluating it like a movie or a meal. as something we watch rather than something we offer and something we do. And Lord, this morning I suspect that there are probably people that fall all across the spectrum of the balance between spirit and truth. For some, uh, there's been a lack of concern for truth in their lives. They haven't given much attention to your word. They haven't cared too much for doctrine. They haven't invested much time reading and studying, seeking to understand your truth. I pray this morning, Lord, that they would understand the importance of that and how important it is to anchor their worship in truth. that they'd be drawn to your word. And Father, there are those this morning, no doubt, that um, have the opposite pole going on in their lives. They understand the doctrine, and we could quiz them this morning, and they'd get the answers. They could talk about systematic theology. They could talk about um, controversial subjects with, with authority. And yet in their hearts, Lord, there's no passion. There's no wonder, and there's no awe. There's no genuine joy that bursts out when they worship you. There's no real passionate love for you going on or visible in the way that they worship. And they know that this morning, Lord, because you're, you're making it clear to them even right now. And Lord, in between those two poles, we all fall somewhere. Lord, what we want more than anything is to be the kind of worshipers that you seek. We want to be the kind of a congregation that when people come here, they see people committed to truth, and yet they see people who love you more than anything. Lord, only you can make us that. There's a million distractions every time we gather that would draw us in different directions. But forgive our complacency, Lord. Forgive our apathy. 
and light us on fire for you. For we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.